And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, Well, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, as he saw Jesus coming toward him, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him or recognize him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him, or it dwelt on him. I myself did not know or recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Pray with me. Lord, this is quite a text of Scripture, and uh, I feel its weight as I come to it. We pray that you would come now by that same Spirit that anointed Jesus for his ministry, and that you would take your word and accomplish the purpose for which you have sent it. Lord, come now and speak to us and minister to our hearts. Lord, build us up in our Lord Jesus. We pray that you would uh, make the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart pleasing in your sight, our Redeemer and my Rock. In the name of our Lord, amen. Well, uh, my dog's name growing up was Elmo. I had, we actually had a couple dogs. One was named Pooch, and it was kind of the, my dad's dog from being a bachelor. But the dog we got as a family, we named Elmo. Well, Elmo was actually a girl, and yet had a decidedly boy name. Uh, among other things, we also bought her at this pet store, and uh, you know how it is in pet stores. They have all these little pens, and then one of the pens, it said, German Shepherd Labrador. Well, we liked the idea of that. So we got her out of this pen, but as we watched her grow, it became really clear that she was uh, not simply just German Shepherd Labrador, right? In fact, very little Labrador. She hated swimming, right? That's one of the hallmarks of being a Labrador. Uh, she, uh, we realized, was what we called uh, an American brown dog. <laughs> that was the breed. She was an American brown dog. She, uh, she had really skinny hips and really high haunches, these uh, really high haunches, fast as a bullet, uh, kind of like a whippet. Uh, she pointed like a hound. She'd raise her, her, her foot and point with her nose. Uh, she had floppy ears like a lab, but again, hated to swim. She had hackles on the back of her back that would raise up, kind of like a Rhodesian Ridgeback, if you know that breed. 
but was small and about the size of a petite border collie uh, with sandy beige fur. Uh, this is no uh, purebred German shepherd. This is a mutt. Uh, <laughs> she was confused, right? And some of that was our fault. We had all sorts of names for her. Well, she fit us pretty well as Americans, my family. I'm a Robbins, uh, which in terms of my heritage means uh, just about nothing, right? Uh, I can go back and read through my heritage, and we've traced people back to different parts of England, and they lived in England. Okay. Uh, I am uh, just like our dog. I'm, uh, I'm, let's see, I'm Scottish, I'm Irish, I'm English, I'm Swiss-French, Swiss-German, uh, probably a tad bit of Cherokee somewhere in the past, uh, and who knows what else, you know? And my kids, I have all sorts of other stuff going on, too. Uh, we are just a big mix. Well, I think as Americans, uh, knowing our place, our identity, is actually a big struggle. Uh, I think that uh, this is a big question for us. If you want proof of this, uh, Ancestry.com, one of these uh, websites that you can look at your family lineage and so on, has 2.7 million users. Just think about the numbers involved in people trying to figure out, where do I fit? What's my, what's my story? Who am I? People, you and I, want to know our heritage. We want to know where we fit into things. American families that have, may have just come to the U.S. or enabled to, been able to stay in kind of their ethnic enclave may have a little bit more of a grasp on their story. But at the end of the day, we as Americans, as kind of a general policy, try to break with tradition as much as possible. Right? This is kind of a, one of our, our proud uh, strengths, is that we want to have uh, so little to do with our tradition that uh, we kind of forge our new identity in the grand American melting pot. Well, that's neither here nor there. That's fine as it is. But uh, what that means for us is that we're stuck trying to figure out who we are in a totally new way. Right? We're always trying to construct our identity with a whole bunch of new categories. So uh, some of the ways we do this, uh, we, uh, we group humanity according to uh, what political parties you belong to, right? Are you Republican? Well, are you Tea Party, right? Uh, we have lots of little sub-niches. We uh, break it into Myers-Briggs personality types. I don't know if there's any other people who know their personality types out there. Uh, we do it with schooling, right? Are you uh, private school? But are you classical? But are you homeschool classical? But are you public? And what, you know, we want to create all sorts of categories to say, well, this is my story. Uh, you know, in middle school, uh, I was asked, first day of middle school, are you a rocker or a rapper, right? <laughs> well, I didn't know I had to make a choice, so I was kind of out of luck, and I fell right through the cracks. But we do this. Uh, what kind of music do you listen to? I don't know how many times I've been asked that. Uh, what kind of food do you like? Do you like oysters? Do you like French food? Do you... We love to craft brands for ourselves. We love to craft brands for ourselves. Uh, we can do it with the type of clothing we wear, type of houses we buy, where we shop for groceries, right? I mean, Trader Joe's has been so successful at crafting some sort of identity around the kind of food you buy. We are desperate to find a way to orient ourselves in the world. And so we brand ourselves and others. We love it. We love it. But that's actually because God has made us this way. He's actually made us to want to have some identity to have a story about ourselves, to have a way to say this is where I fit in this world and this is where I'm going. But what I want to say this morning is that the way that we are to do that is not through figuring out which sub-niche of the 
Northwest culture we fit into, but that we figure out our identity by being in Christ. In fact, we have all we need and more in Christ for figuring out who in the world we are to be. Christ is our identity. He is like a compass. But the way we learn that identity, the way we figure out what that means is through the mark of baptism. Baptism is our brand. Baptism is our brand. He's given us baptism to tell us what our heritage is, to direct us, to tell us who we belong to. You know, this passage uh, is forever going to be a strange one. I'm reading through John the first time and just thinking, what in the world is going on here? This is so weird. Uh, And it's going to always be strange to us so long as we uh, don't do a bit of work and try and figure out what baptism actually does. All right, so some of that uh, means that we have a little bit of work to do this morning to kind of think through what does baptism actually do. But we also have a bigger fish to fry, uh, and that is uh, we need to understand uh, we need to understand who we are and what our identity is. And so long as we don't understand what baptism does and what it is, we're going to struggle. We're going to flounder uh, in knowing where we fit. So I have two questions today. These are kind of major headings. I was going to give you just two points, and I realized I had a bunch of stuff to say. So two headings, three points each. All right, for all of you note takers. So that's two main points, three subpoints, each with further subpoints. First question: What does baptism do? Okay, and I have three points there. God the Spirit cleans us through baptism. God the Spirit joins us to Christ and to His body through baptism. And God the Spirit anoints us for ministry through baptism. Cleans, joins, anoints. How does baptism shape our identity? This is the second question. How does baptism shape our identity? I have three points here. Self-definition is empty. Okay, we're talking about self-definition. Our identity is bound up in relationships. We get our identity through relationships. And then third, I want to tell you who you are in Christ. So what does baptism do? I have three answers. God washes away our sin through it. He joins us to Christ and to his body and anoints us for ministry. So uh, verse 25 is kind of strange. I just want to dig in here for a second. Let's go to verse 25. And just think about this question for a second, okay? The Pharisees, this uh, group of priests and Levites, uh, partly Pharisees, probably partly Sadducees, ask John, why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I think that for most of us, uh, if you're like me and you grew up in uh, maybe non-denominational kind of American Christianity, and I'm so thankful for that, uh, there are a lot of things here that just don't make sense. Okay? Uh, one of the things that I was taught growing up, and uh, I'm assuming a number of you are similar to me, is that baptism was brand new when John started doing it. Right? Uh, baptism was a new thing. But what's interesting is that... Uh, even though we think of it that way, the questions that these Pharisees are asking assume that they know what baptism is, they know who ought to be doing it, and they know what God does with it. Right? They're coming to John and saying, listen, why are you, what are you doing? As if they already knew what baptism was supposed to do. Uh, we've been trained to be suspicious of the Pharisees, and there's certainly reason for that. Jesus rebukes them a number of times. But one thing that John does here is that... Uh, he does correct them, but only in terms of who he is. 
You notice that? John does not correct them about their view of baptism. This is his chance to say, listen, you guys have no idea what you're talking about, okay? Let me just break it down for you. This is a brand new thing I'm about to drop on you, okay? Just listen, all right? But he doesn't. He, in fact, does not correct their view of baptism at all. So, what do we do with that? Well, what I want to say is that if we really want to understand the New Testament, we always have to start with the Old Testament. I know that sounds daunting for a lot of you guys. New Testament's a lot easier to read. Old Testament's big and a tad bit clunky here and there. But in the reality, New Testament just thinks in terms of the Old Testament. I'm going to suggest that before we can understand what John is doing with baptizing, we need to understand what these Levites and priests think about baptism. And the way we're going to do that is looking at the Old Testament background. Now, this is a little bit of work, so I'm just going to tell you right now. I realize we're going to dive in. I want to say this is a bit of work, but if you stick with me, I think the fruit will be, will be great. There'll be a good payoff, all right? That's, that's my hope. I, I can't guarantee that, but <laughs> that's what I'm aiming at. All right, look at verse 19. This is the testimony of John when the Jews... That's uh, John's term for just kind of broad religious leadership usually. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask who you are, who are you? So this is our little clue. Uh, Priests and Levites are people who are skilled in Old Testament ritual cleanliness, right? To be a Levite is to be someone who knows the book of Leviticus like the back of your hand. They, They have it down. They know what kind of washings you need to do for this kind of impurity and what kind of things they have the whole thing mapped out. This should spur us to think about how uh, these things happen. And in fact, uh, in Leviticus, there are all sorts of washings that are prescribed, all sorts of purifications that are given to God's people to wash and consecrate themselves to come into God's presence. You tracking with me? In Exodus, uh, before God even meets with his people at Mount Sinai, he has all of them consecrate themselves, which is bathing, and has them wash their clothes. In Leviticus, uh, if anyone happens to become unclean, and I'm not going to break down all the uncleanliness laws here, but uh, if you want to read about it, it's in Leviticus 11 on. There's lots of laws about how you can become unclean. If someone does, the prescribed way of becoming clean is being washed. You be washed, so then you can, after being washed, you can come back and participate in the religious life of the community. In fact, uh, lepers and that's a broad term, Uh, anyone with sort of a skin disease has to go outside of the camp where God lived with all of his people, had to stay outside until he was healed. And then once he was healed, you know what happened? The priest had to come out and say, yeah, you've been healed. Now, what we need to do is we need to prepare some sacrifices and we're going to wash you. And so they would wash the leper from head to toe. They would shave him, wash his clothes, and then they would kill these sacrifices and apply the blood to his, let's see, right earlobe, his uh, right thumb, and his right big toe. And once he was purified by blood and by washing, he could come into, back into the camp. He could be back with God's people. He could be joined to God's people and come before the Lord. And then on top of that, they would anoint him with oil. Okay, in the same places. Anointing him, welcoming him back in. Now, 
I realize that some of you, as I'm talking about this, you're hearing some of the parallels here with washing and so on, but some of you, like me, are thinking, well, rituals, really? Rituals? Is it really where we want to spend our time on a Sunday morning? Aren't those just kind of empty, meaningless rites? Right? Just forms? But the real work, the real heart, the real meat is in the spiritual. It's in the spiritual instead of my rituals. But I just want to say, John, both the gospel writer and the baptizer, and the Pharisees and the Levites, no one else is confused as we are. Uh, they all think that these rites are actually a tool of the Spirit. Okay? They're actually a tool of the Spirit. And let me give you a few Old Testament texts that assume the same thing. All right, here's Ezekiel 36. God's telling uh, the Israelites how he's going to bring them back from being in exile. And he says that they were unclean. And he says he's going to bring them back through washing them. He uses ritual terminology. Listen to this. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God and I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. Here's Psalm 51, uh, a text that most of us are probably much more familiar with. David is confessing that he has just uh, taken this woman Bathsheba and kind of compelled her uh, to have sex with him and then he kills her husband, right? Pretty grievous stuff. And this is his confession. This is verse 7. He says... Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Now, just so you know, hyssop is not some just funny word. It's actually something that priests use in Leviticus to dip in blood and water and smear on things, to purify them. What David is saying is that he needs the priests to come and clean him. He needs to be washed. He needs to be clean from his sin. So the first thing we can say about what baptism does, and we see this from the Old Testament, is that uh, through this ritual, through this ritual washing, God purifies the conscience of his people by the work of the Spirit and welcomes them into the community. Let me just read that one more time. God purifies the consciences of his people by the work of the Spirit through the ritual and welcomes them into the community. Peter says something very similar. Baptism now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So whereas Old Testament baptism and washings had this kind of repeated washing that happened in New Testament baptism, doesn't say, well now, that doesn't mean anything. It says, no, this means the exact same thing, but now we only do it once. Now we only do it once, and it lasts forever. For many of us, uh, and I, I found myself still learning about this, uh, we have been taught that the Old Testament and New Testament are opposed to each other, that they're enemies, right? That the God of the Old Testament is kind of some fiery, angry God who gets really angry really quickly, and he's always mad about something. And then Jesus comes, and it's free love, and 
you know, flowers and daisies and so on. Uh, and God comes across as kind of having changed his mind halfway through. Like the angry parent who realizes he's alienating his kids and he's like, well, I'm sorry, let me just kind of rework this, right? God's kind of schizophrenic or he's confused about what to do with us. But what I want to say is, you know, the way the scriptures talk about it, the way the New Testament talks about it, is not that New Testament good, Bad Testament, or Old Testament bad, but Old Testament good. Old Testament is good. These things are good. And the New Testament is even better. It's even better. It's way better. And the difference that the New Testament gives us is a different mediator, a different savior. It's better because of the person. And that's why the Pharisees are asking, well, who are you? Are, are you the one we've been expecting? Are you the one who's going to fully bring salvation? I should also just point out that we shouldn't be surprised that John is baptizing. He's the son of a priest, after all. Right? He's a priest, functioning as a priest, baptizing people. Uh, the New Testament really is just tracing right along with the Old Testament. So this leads us to our second point, which is really clear in the Old Testament, but also really clearly affirmed in the New Testament. Baptism joins you to Christ and to his body. In fact, New Testament doesn't even have to say it that clearly. To be joined to Christ is to be joined to his body. So baptism is a joining into God's people. So again, verse 25, notice how the Pharisees assume that baptism does this because they just asked John what his role is. They're saying, listen, we have a bunch of figures we're expecting to come and kind of bring the full salvation, right? Who do they list? Elijah, who was prophesied about in Malachi 3, okay? He was an Old Testament prophet, and then Malachi picks him up and says, God's going to send another Elijah to bring salvation, to bring the day of the Lord. They say, are you the prophet? That was another figure that God's people expected, a prophet like Moses to rise up and got, lead God's people to salvation. And then Messiah, Christ, the anointed king like David. So we have a prophet, priest, and king that are all expected and they're saying, are you one of these guys? Because clearly, if you're baptizing, what you're saying to all of us who have been baptized into Moses already is that there's a new figure coming. There's a new savior. There is a new mediator. Paul says just about the same thing. He says that uh, Baptism unites us to our Savior, it joins us. He says this in 1 Corinthians 10, but he says it about Moses. He says the Old Testament people were baptized into Moses. All right, this is 1 Corinthians 10. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. The rock was Christ. Now, clearly, Moses is not the Savior. Okay, God saved his people through Moses. But Paul says, listen, to be part of God's people is to be joined to the one God sent. And he says, it's the same thing for us. He doesn't bat an eye. To be baptized is to be joined to Christ. Have you ever asked yourself, how is it that the blood of Christ, which was shed 2,000 years ago, is applied to me now? I mean, that's, a, that's a real question. How does that even happen? Well, let me tell you. The Bible thinks that it happens through your baptism. 
Your baptism is your marriage to Christ. Just like when my wife married to me, she married into all of my student debt. <laughs> she got all the benefits of being connected to me. When we marry into Christ, we get all the benefits that he has bought for us. His blood is applied to us through baptism. That's why we can call it washing. His love is put on us. His blessings are given to us. His family name is put on us. He becomes our king, our priest, our prophet. Now, uh, let me just say, uh, the reason why all of this about baptism doesn't really get into the core of our identities is because most of us want to just stop there. We just want to stop with being joined to Christ. Okay? We want to stop uh, because uh, we don't really want to deal with his body. And that's not crazy. The body of Christ is difficult. It's a hard group of people. It's really hard opening yourself up to people. And many of us have been hurt. But baptism has always, always in church history, been understood to not only join you to Christ, but if it joins you to Christ, it also joins you to the body. So to be baptized is to become one of God's people, to become part of the church. So just as we saw with lepers coming back in to the community in Leviticus, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink one spirit. Well, that's all fine and good until uh, we begin to think about what that means for our relationship with the local church. You know, uh, in American uh, thinking, uh, largely because of our love of freedom and uh, our insistence on absolute independence uh, and on democracy as kind of this uh, God-ordained good, uh, the American church, uh, since the Second Great Awakening, the 1850s, uh, began to hold a view of the church which is entirely foreign to the New Testament. Entirely foreign to the New Testament. Church uh, was seen as something that individuals directed, just as individuals direct our democratic union. Uh, so Christ was made into the president, and uh, individual Christians uh, were kind of voters in this democracy, so what doctrines were taught, what direction the church took, uh, were all treated like democratic decisions. Now, I'm not opposed to democracy. I think we have a fine government, but the reality is that the New Testament does not speak about the church this way. And oftentimes what happens is uh, a lot of these decisions get treated with the same seriousness that we treat uh, which brand of toothpaste we should get. Okay? Uh, the impulse behind this is a good one because in reality, uh, we do not want a church that is top-down hierarchical and dominant and tyrannical, right? We don't want the tyranny of a church. So it's a good impulse. Individuals make up the church and their voice is important, like I said to all of you about the congregational meeting. Uh, and good leadership takes into consideration the voice and needs of the people. But the really ugly, ugly result, uh, which I don't think was intended, uh, was that Christians began to view Christ and his church as separable as kind of two distinct entities. And that being a Christian was kind of another uh, brand choice. Uh, the church slipped into what I call a friends with benefits model. You guys familiar with that term? <laughs> okay, that's kind of the view that most of us have of the church by default, just growing up in America. 
Well, the local church is kind of some loose coalition of believers happen to bump into each other in the same building, but really, uh, we don't owe anything to anyone else and no one owes anything to us. Uh, once that happens, though, uh, life in Christ is no longer in Christ, but what? Christ comes into my life. He's an add-on to my life. I have a, I have a Christ component to my life that I've allowed him to have. And I'm not now being brought into his world. In the worst forms, what this looks like is I don't owe anything to Jesus apart from some intellectual assent. And the church kind of becomes this group of friends who are supposed to help me along, but who better not say anything hard to me. Now, the best forms, and I think this is more the case, uh, is that we value and love the church, kind of like the way we value and love our family. I want to maintain this relationship, but don't you dare come into my life. (laughs) Don't you dare tell me how I ought to run things. Don't give me any guidance. Uh, The church is the place where we love each other in this view, but uh, how the church is related to Christ is entirely unclear. In fact, many of the statements that Jesus gives, think about when when he tells Peter, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you loose is loose in heaven when you bound, bind is bound in heaven. All of those statements don't make any sense to us if this is our view of the church. If the church is kind of some loose coalition. Both forms of this belief, the best and the worst, have the same damaging view. That what really matters is our kind of close eye spiritual relationship to Christ. And that uh, our body, our commitments, our loyalties are not really that important. Uh, it's act, in fact, that's kind of uh, a very serious danger, getting close to what's called Gnosticism, one of the first church heresies. Uh, once you begin to hold a view like this, baptism becomes your receipt for your purchase. Okay, For your purchase uh, that you have made to be with Christ. Or, only slightly better, it's an outward expression of an inward grace which is to say that getting baptized is to being in Christ what wearing an I voted sticker is to being an American voter. Well, this time I really did it. I really cared. Do you get what I'm saying here? It's not necessary, but good in this view. But in fact, the Bible thinks that baptism is entirely necessary. It's your marriage ceremony. As Cyril, uh, one of the early Christian thinkers said, uh, you cannot have God for father unless you have church as mother. This has been the church's understanding of the scriptures from early, very early on. But, you know, the problem is, uh, for most of us, when I start talking about the church this way, we immediately imagine kind of this top-heavy bureaucracy that is desperate to manage and control every aspect of its people's lives, right? Kind of imagine this really uh, power-hungry group So we kind of have to ask, and this is my third point, uh, what is the church? Who are we? What are we doing? And I want to say that the church is all those people who have been given the Spirit through their baptism who have been joined into the mission of Christ. The church is given all this authority because it's Christ's mission. So we see this in verse 33. John testifies to when he's baptizing Jesus, and he says that, uh, sorry, verse 32 is better. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him, or dwelt on him. Now here's the thing. Uh, Christ, or Messiah, means anointed. 
Do you know who was anointed in the Old Testament? Priests, prophets, kings. They were anointed for a task. Jesus has always been filled with the Spirit, right? I mean, he's, he's the Son of God. He's going to be full of the Spirit. But at this point, he's anointed for his mission. And when you and I are baptized into Christ, we get the same baptism. Not only are we baptized with his blood and made pure <clears throat> and brought into his people, but we are a people who have been given the anointing of the Spirit. We have the same Spirit that Jesus did. We are called into the same mission. What this means is that you are no less useful to God and his mission because you haven't been to seminary or you are not ordained. You have all that you need to be profoundly impactful in the kingdom of God. You have the Spirit of God. It means that to be a Christian is to be in Christ, to be in his church, and to be on his mission. So those are my first three points. The next three are much quicker. Don't, don't worry. Only an hour more. So the second question, how does baptism shape our identity? How does baptism shape our identity? What? Okay, great. Let's just assume all this is true. What does that mean for me now? Well, I think, actually, this is a big question for my generation especially. Who am I? How do I figure out who I am? How do I discern uh, where I'm supposed to be? And you can see this in how often have you heard these sort of things. Be true to yourself, right? Show of hands, yeah? Uh, be authentic, right? Listen to your heart. And uh, for the most part, those things are fairly good, right? It's not that we want you to be fake. Those are all good in a general sense. But uh, once we actually really try to apply these with the utmost consistency, kind of get into a weird and dangerous place. Right? The way we're encouraged to figure this out is kind of by emptying our mind. And, and what? What does it look like for me to be true to myself? I, what am I going to do to figure out who I am? Well, in most cases in, in Bellingham, right, what am I going to do? I'm going to go up to Baker. And I'm going to go climb Table Mountain. And I'm going to try and ignore the other people over there. And I'm going <laughs> to be on this edge and try and somehow block out everything from my mind and commune with something and, and begin to discover myself. But what really is happening there is that I'm, li I'm walking around in a world full of God's gifts, a world charged with God's beauty, a world that's good to live in, and of course I'm going to feel encouraged. I'm walking around seeing God's kindness to me. It's filling me up. So, of course, that tells me who I am. It tells me I'm a creature. I'm free to taste God's goodness. You know, if we really want to be consistent and define ourselves, to be true to ourselves, you know what that actually approaches, what it gets really close to, is uh, what we call solitary confinement in the prison system. Right? No external input. I'm simply going to empty my mind and be true to myself. Let me read you a description of this gentleman uh, who spent... This is a gentleman's description of his time in solitary confinement. It's quite chilling. After only a short time in solitary, I felt all of my senses begin to diminish. There was nothing to see but gray walls. In New York's so-called special housing units, or SHUs, most cells have solid steel doors, and many do not have windows. You cannot even tape up pictures or photographs. They must be kept in an envelope. To fight the blankness, I counted bricks and measured the walls. I had to have something in my head. I stared obsessively at the bolts on the door to my cell. There was nothing to hear except empty, 
echoing voices from other parts of the prison. I was so lonely that I hallucinated words coming out of the wind. They sounded like whispers. Sometimes I smelled the paint on the wall, but more often I just smelled myself, revolted by my own scent. There was no touch. My food was pushed through a slot. Doors were activated by buzzers, even the one that led to a literal cage directly outside of my cell for one hour per day of recreation. Even time had no meaning in solitary. The lights were kept on for 24 hours. I often found myself wondering if in an event I was recollecting or had happened that morning or days before. I talked to myself. I began to get scared that the guards would come and kill me and leave me hanging in the cell. Who would know if something happened to me? Just as I was invisible, so was the space I inhabited. The very essence of life I came to learn during those seemingly endless days is human contact and the affirmation of existence that comes with it. Losing that contact, you lose your sense of identity. You become nothing. If we are going to try and apply this be true to ourselves to the nth degree, what we're going to end up approaching is further and further towards solitary confinement. The solitary self is the identity-less self. So this is my fifth point. Our identity is rooted in relationship. In relating, but being related to. Think about the way your parents shape you, right? I, I love art. I'm an artist. I love to think. Well, that's no big surprise. My mother was an artist and my father was a thinker. Hmm. Interesting. I love Transformers. Hmm. I grew up in the 80s. Big surprise. All of these things, these external things, have shaped me. But the other side of this is that many of us actually have terrible relationships. And solitary confinement looks great when we're in the midst of harsh, abusive, deadly relationships. So it's not enough to simply say we need relationships, we need human contact, because in fact, you can be surrounded with human contact and it's only damaging to you. But this is why you need the church. This is why you need the church. You need the church as a people who have come to cling to Christ, a forgiven people. So you all are sitting in here in church. Why am I telling you this? Well, because church life is difficult. It's hard. It's costly. And yet it's God's chosen tool to shape you according to Christ's image. The church works every time. It always has an effect. If it's filled with malicious, selfish people, it's going to have an effect. A bad one. If it's filled with people who have made their baptism their identity, it's going to be life-giving. A place of joy. A place of real glory. Baptism tells you how Christ relates to you first before it tells you anything about how you relate to him. So let me just close by telling you how Christ relates to you who are baptized. This is who you are in Christ. You are chosen. You are washed. You are beloved. You are clean. You're his cherished bride, clothed in his righteousness without blemish, precious, beautiful, gifted, honored children. You stand in the righteousness of Christ before the Father. You are delighted in. You are rejoiced over in Christ. You are a member of, of the long-awaited guest 
at the great feast on the last day, you are the bride of Christ. This is who you are in Christ. This is what your baptism means. That is your identity. Let me just say, some of you I know can relate to my confused American heritage. Uh, maybe some of you feel like the American brown dog in the room. Uh, let me just say, if you are not in Christ, be joined to him today. Be joined to Christ. Confess your sins, repent, and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. We would love to baptize you. I've been talking about what it means to be in Christ this whole time, and I can do this without feeling like I'm bragging, right? Uh, I'm talking about how great it is and what the Lord's doing here in the church, because in reality, uh, as much as this is a family that God has made, it's a family that's open, entirely open. In fact, if you're sitting in this room, you are sitting in a group of people who were formerly totally lost and confused, and now have Christ, who knows what he's doing, whether or not they're still a tad bit lost and confused as well. You're sitting in a room of people who have been wandering and who were no people and now have been made a people. You're sitting in a room of people who have once known a world without mercy and now are full of God's mercy. So, let me encourage you all, whether you are apart from Christ or in Christ, be joined to him. Deepen your union with your Savior. Let me pray. Lord, we pray for you to come and work by your Spirit through these words. and Shape us, Lord. Shape us by our baptism. Join us to you, Lord Jesus. Deepen our union. Would you come and minister to us through uh, songs and prayers, Lord, but especially by your Spirit, who would come and fill us now. Be with all those who don't know you, Lord, and draw them near to you, we pray. In the name of our Lord, amen.